Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to read briefly from Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 18. And then we'll turn over to our sermon passage, which is in Hebrews 5. So in a moment, be ready to turn over to Hebrews 5. But first, let's look together at Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 18, this song of Moses, which he gave to the second generation of Israel on the plains of Moab after they had come up out of Egypt. Hear now the word of the Lord. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain. Let my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old? Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the wilderness, in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. And there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. Curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with the fat of lambs. And rams of the breeds of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat. And you drank wine, the blood of grapes. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Therefore, he forsook God who made him. And scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals. That your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. And have forgotten the Father, the God who fathered you. Amen. 
Moses begins his song by recounting a brief history of Israel. It is a sad history, but it is a familiar history. Moses says to Israel, Your God adopted you, said you, you are my kid. And he fed you, and he clothed you, and he cared for you, and he prospered you. And the result of all those blessings that God heaped upon you is you grew to despise him. You grew to forget him. As we as humans are so prone to do, we, we begin to worship the blessing and not the blesser. We worship the creature instead of the creator. We lose sight of the goodness of God amidst the goodness of all that God has done. And Moses here begins his warning to Israel by calling them back to this truth. You should love God for who he is before you love him for what he's done. With that in mind, turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. Our sermon passage this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 5. And I will begin reading, as I mentioned last week, much to the chagrin of some of my children, in the middle of a sentence. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 10. And we'll read through chapter 6, ending with verse 3, which I will note has a period at the end of it. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, through chapter 6, verse 3. Here again the word of the Lord. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you who have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, the Mangans asked if we could baptize Benno on the 23rd. I glanced at the sermon passage and I said, you bet. What a terrific fit. The text reminded me of when I was coming of age in the latter half of the 20th century. Like many young males at that time, I reached 16 with only one thing on my mind. Four wheels and a steering wheel. When I turned 16, my mom took me to the Department of Motor Vehicles, and I took that test, and when I passed it, they handed me this permit that said, you are now legally allowed to drive a car. So that afternoon, at 16 years old, I drove my mom home from the DMV. She survived, at least physically. 
I signed up for the road test. I was excited. I was ready to have a car. And then my mom pulled me aside and said, job, paycheck, savings, insurance, tires, oil change. And I just sat there going, what are you talking about? Freedom, speed, excitement. This is often the line, is it not, between youth and adult? Child and mature? Is this not often our experience spiritually? That we don't see how growing up in the faith consists of accepting responsibility, of embracing relationships and the burdens that they bring to us, living a life of love, such as we have been loved in Christ. The encouragement, the good news that we are given today in our text is that Jesus is at work in us. Jesus is writing his salvation in the pages of our life. He is writing his salvation into your hearts and into your minds, into your very person. And so the text calls us To respond to his word, to believe his word, to live out his word. Beloved, this is the gospel for us today, the indicative and the imperative, the good news and its consequences. To believe that Jesus is writing salvation in us and to live out that word of salvation in our relationships. As the Stevens confessed this morning, To live out it in all relationships of life. Now I want you to think about this a little bit with me today. Notice in verse 10, as we begin, that the Holy Spirit lays down the theological foundation for basically his whole book. This is something of a restatement of his thesis. Jesus called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. The burden of the Holy Spirit in the book of Hebrews is that we would understand that it is Jesus who is called by God to be high priest. Jesus is the one God has chosen to be Savior in salvation, not you, not me. We do not save our spouse, we do not save our children, we do not save our neighbors. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who has been called by God. He is God's sovereign choice for salvation. The one called by God out of humanity to represent humanity as a high priest is Jesus. This work of high priest is is the one that we read of last week in the previous verses. He presents on humanity's behalf gifts and sacrifices for sin in order that there might be forgiveness of sin. In order that there might be a gift of righteousness to we who do not have it. Beloved, we have a Jesus in whom is salvation, according to the order of Melchizedek. This phrase will be developed at length in chapters 6 and 7. We'll wait and we'll get to the deeper meaning. For now, we can simply see in chapter 5 that with the quotes from Psalm 2 and the quotes from Psalm 110, the Holy Spirit is saying that Melchizedek's order is an order of priest and king. Melchizedek is this guy from Genesis. He was both priest and king. The offices were 
brought together and fused. Aaron was not a king. Aaron's descendants were not a king. They were priests and priests alone. But Melchizedek and those of his order, namely Jesus Christ, are both priest and king. By this we are taught by the Holy Spirit that Jesus has all power sufficient for salvation. He is the king. He also has all the sacrifice and atonement necessary for salvation. He is the priest. Though not stated explicitly here, we can certainly add to this that Jesus Christ is prophet. He reveals the will of God for our salvation. In other words, verse 10 restates the foundation of our doctrine, of our gospel, of the book of Hebrews. There is complete salvation in Jesus Christ and salvation in no one else. To this we must conclude, friends, two important things about our faith. One is, there is nothing done for your salvation that Jesus himself didn't do. You do not add to the work of Christ. It is all sufficient. It is total. It is complete. He said from the cross, it is finished. But secondly, friends, let us also conclude from this. That there is no one and nowhere else to which we must look. It is Christ and Christ alone. With this in mind, verse 11 makes this very application. The singularity of Jesus. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. The Holy Spirit says to us that he has much to say about Jesus. When we come to talk about Jesus, it's a big topic. I mean, we are talking about the second person of the Trinity. That's a big topic right there, right? We have second person Trinity. We have three persons, one God. That's a big topic. And it is hard to explain. One of my favorite questions that I recently put in a membership interview to new incoming members How many gods are there? Oh, one. How many persons are there? Oh, three. What's a person? Just kidding. It is hard to explain the Trinity. It is a complex doctrine and there is much that could be said about it. Jesus, likewise, as the second person of the Trinity, as the Son of God, is God and man in the flesh. Two distinct natures in one person, without confusion, without diffusion, without separation. That's hard to explain. It's complex, and there's much we could say about it. Jesus left heaven for earth. That's hard to explain, and there's much we could say about it. Jesus took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul so that he could bear sin and the curse of sin in his body. That is hard to explain, and there's much we could say about it. Jesus has given you his righteousness. Jesus has given you his Holy Spirit to live in you, to make you a new creation. To conform you to his image and his likeness. That's hard to explain. And there's much we could say about it. 
But the Holy Spirit has a problem. A problem that, that he now calls out and he points his finger into every face and says, but you have become dull of hearing. There is so much more I could tell you about Jesus, but you don't want to listen. You're distracted. You're tired. You're busy. You see, the Holy Spirit's whole thrust in the book of Hebrews is that they are tempted to depart from the centrality and singularity of Christ. These Hebrews, having embraced Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, are nevertheless tempted to go back to Moses to insist on the burden of the law. And we are modern-day Hebrews. We who come Lord's Day after Lord's Day to hear the gospel are constantly tempted to say, give me that works righteousness. We're constantly tempted to say, let me obey in order to please my heavenly Father. We we become dull of hearing and say, enough. Enough of this good news of Jesus. We become distracted. We walk out the door and we're immediately filled with thoughts of the world and of work and of worry. And we're overwhelmed with a tsunami. I mean... One of the hard things and one of the beautiful things about preaching is you get to preach sermons that you yourself are like at the receiving end. You're facing down two insanely busy weeks, having just come off the heels of two insanely busy weeks, and you're thinking, where's the break? And Jesus shows up and he says, right here, I am your break. I am your rest. But you have become dull of hearing. The ears are so full of the social media. The ears are so full of the sin and the sorrow. The ears are so full of all the lies of Satan and all the whispers of the demons. The ears are so clogged up. There's a great metaphor in Psalm 40. You have dug ears for me. That's literally what it is in the Hebrew. He unstops our ears. He digs out the mess so that our hearing is sharp and acute and we can pay close attention to the voice of Jesus in the scriptures. This is the burden of the book of Hebrews. That we should recognize Jesus as the key and the answer to every page of scripture. That we should recognize him as the sole and complete source of salvation. To this end, the Holy Spirit gives us two metaphors, two illustrations to help us understand and feel this truth. First, verses 12 through 14, we are told about teachers. Secondly, in verses 12 through 14, we are told about babies. Now, in verses 12 through 14, the Holy Spirit weaves the imagery of teacher and baby in together into one seamless flow of ideas. But for our purposes, to help us understand what the Holy Spirit is telling us, I'm going to separate those two threads. First, let's look at teachers. It says in verse 12, by this time you ought to be teachers. The congregation who is receiving this original message, this original sermon, 
were evidently those who had been in the faith for some time. And the time that they had spent with Jesus, believing in Jesus, was sufficient to produce maturity. They ought to have grown up. They ought to have been teachers. But evidently they were not. According to this, teachers are someone, in verse 12, who grasp the first principles of the oracles of God. I find this a huge relief. It doesn't say that they have a complete and masterful understanding of the scriptures. That they know everything there is to know about every systematic theology that was ever published. That they can at a moment's notice stand on the front porch and wonderfully, powerfully answer every question you could possibly bring to him. It doesn't say that. It says that teachers are able to discern the first principles of the scriptures. Those will be defined later in our passage. So for now, let us see that the teachers are those who know the scriptures. Those who know the oracles or sayings of God. Who have read the Bible and are familiar with them in their first principles. But secondly, they are also skilled in the word of righteousness. That is in verse 13. Teachers are those who have hands that are able to unfold the scriptures, the words of righteousness, who are able to bring out of its pages skillfully and wisely the righteousness therein, the righteousness of Christ freely given to us, the righteousness of Christ which we by faith receive and then practice. This is what a teacher is. Someone who knows the scriptures and can see skillfully turned them to bring forth righteousness in the hearts of the hearers. But then thirdly, in verse 14, we are told that a teacher is one who by reason of use, that is by practice, have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. A teacher is someone who has a habit, a routine, a rhythm, by which they can understand good from evil. We have this experience. Someone who can actually open the scriptures and apply it to our lives. And can say to us, this is good, this is evil. Who can produce in our lives the diligent work of making the word become flesh. Do you follow? A teacher is someone who is able, in the words of Ezra, to study to do, and to teach. Someone who is themselves conformed to the teaching of the scriptures. The Puritans were big on this. That whatever happens in the teaching of the word of God, in the preaching of the word of God, what is paramount and most important is the person's life conforms to it. There is an understanding of it that grows up into obedience There is a passion for it that grows up into obedience. A teacher is someone who is able to read the Bible and then apply it. This is what we ought to be growing into. That we can understand the gospel in the pages and in the words. And we can bring the gospel into our thoughts and our minds. What what God's work is in among us is that our thoughts and our words and our deeds would come into the conformity of Christ. That we would grow up into him who is our head. He gives us a second metaphor. 
It's babies. You guys see how this is a timely sermon, a timely text? You see, babies are distinct and well-known among us. We've had a bunch. We're averaging a baptism about every other month. God has blessed us with babies, but they need milk, not solid food. They partake only of milk. Solid food is for those who are of full age. In this metaphor, the Holy Spirit is reminding us of what is naturally true. That when we first come into the world through birth, we haven't the digestive tract necessary to turn complex proteins and carbohydrates into muscle and bone. We need milk. We need that partially broken down fatty material that can be easily digested. And they can turn into the health and the vitality that the young need. But those who grow up have to move out of this. I grew up on a dairy farm. We drank a lot of milk. I think we drank two gallons a day. There were five teenage boys, but still. We added to that, however, meat. And at mom's insistence, vegetables. And we would learn to eat rightly and learn to supply our bones with the density that we needed, our muscles with the repair and the rebuilding to the damage that we had done, that through solid food we might grow up and be strong and active. This is the image for us who are in faith, that we who have drank the milk of the word who have had someone come and open up the scriptures for us and and hand us the application and say, here's the truth of God and how it shapes your thoughts. Here's the truth of God and how it shapes your feelings. Here's the truth of God and here's how you see Jesus in the words and how you live out that love in your relationships around you. We grow up into those who can do it ourselves. Does the image make sense? There's one more example that we could give that is based in the sense of the baby, although the Holy Spirit at this time wouldn't have it accessible. Have you ever tried to feed a child, an infant, a toddler? One of our favorite lines from when we were feeding little children, we were asked, when do you know the baby is done eating? Mom's answer, one of us bursts into tears. There is this reality to growth. It is hard. It is slow. It is something with which we must persist, in which we learn to hold for ourselves the utensil, in which we learn to use the scriptures and to submit to the spirits working in the scriptures among us, in us, and through us. This is the call of the spirit upon us. To understand that the salvation of Christ is being worked out in us as we apply ourselves to the scriptures. That as we read them, hear them, practice them, their truths become true of us. We become skilled in handling the word of righteousness. To this end then, the Holy Spirit provides us with three couplets of how this could work out in our lives. They're not random, they're not accidental. But they are three specific expressions matched in couplet form, so six total, that allow us to grow up into Christ. 
Notice in verse 1 of chapter 6, the Holy Spirit says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles. First, let me notice, he doesn't mean this in some sort of expansive, like, sanctification, everybody's going to be leaving this discussion all at once now. He means right here, right now, as I transition from chapter 5 to chapter 6. Let's leave the elementary principles which we have been reviewing for five chapters. The elementary principles which can be summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the salvation. There is no other. Let us now go on to perfection. Or as you see in your footnote, maturity. Let us go on to be like Jesus. Having for five chapters laid out, this is the perfection of Christ. This is the beauty of Christ. Let us go on now to be Christ-like. Let us mature. Let us grow up. Let us be conformed to the image which we have now been discussing. Let us not lay again the first principles of the oracle of God. Let us not lay again the foundation of the word of righteousness. Let us not lay again the foundation of the elementary principles. We've already laid it. We already know what is the foundation, the ground on which we build repentance and faith. On which we build baptism and the laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We build it on that foundation that we have talked about for five chapters. It starts with J and ends with Jesus. It is Jesus, his person and his work. Let's not relay the foundation. Let's not try to build our lives on anything other than Jesus. Let's put some walls on that foundation. Let's put some windows and doors into those walls. Let's get a roof on it. Let us grow up into the image and likeness of Christ. Here's how. Repentance from dead works. Because Jesus has died for your sin, die to your sin. Repent from your dead works. Return away, turn away from those sins which are killing you. Put them to death and what is earthly in you. Jesus is the foundation of repentance. Because you have heard the name and person and work of Jesus, beloved, repent. Turn away from sin. But turn in faith toward God. Turn toward your Father. Turn away from self and sin and turn toward the Father in heaven in prayer and then put your trust and dependence in Him because of the work of Jesus. Secondly, the doctrine of baptism and the laying on of hands. The doctrine of baptism is apparent to us. I mean, literally. You guys all saw it. Some of you took video. You can see it on Facebook or YouTube or Instagram later today. It'll certainly be on our live stream. You can see baptism. But what about laying on of hands? There are two possible interpretations for this in the scriptures. The more common and familiar and comfortable one is ordination. You lay on hands of someone as you pray over them in order to set them apart to the office of deacon or elder. The other one is actually in Nehemiah. If you violate the Sabbath again, I will lay hands on you. It's called church discipline. I will punish you. In either case, what seems to be the Holy Spirit's teaching here 
I should say, what the Holy Spirit is teaching here is that baptism is rooted in Christ and our membership and our offices in in the church are rooted in Christ. He is saying to us, let's not lay the foundation of the church again. Let's be the church. Let's get baptized and disciple one another. Let's grow up into being deacons and elders. Let's embrace the responsibility of laying hands on one another. Let us discipline one another. Let us exercise church discipline in love. Let us be the church. Let us repent of our sin and express faith in God. Let us be baptized and ordained and discipline one another. And then thirdly, of resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Let us embrace the hope, the eschatology of the world that is to come. Let us live in this world with anticipation of the glory of the world that is to come. That this death that is hovering over us, that this death that is everywhere encroaching in upon us, this death that is yet working within us, is not the end of the story. There is resurrection and eternal life on the other side. That so too to live in the hope and the vision of eternal judgment. That I know the verdict and I know the sentence. I know what is the will of God for me. That one day I shall stand in glory and he shall say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. What the Holy Spirit is urging us to consider is to grow up. To have a growing faith. A faith that understands. Because Jesus has done it all. Because Jesus has saved to the uttermost. We should repent of our sin. And believe in God. We should live together in a loving fellowship. Embracing the responsibilities of a community. A congregation of Jesus Christ. And we should live with hope for the future. Something better is coming. Something great and good is coming. The new heavens and the new earth. These are the three burdens that the Holy Spirit lays on those who have grasped the goodness of the gospel. That we should live like this. But I wanted to end with verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. I wanted to end here because I love the way the Holy Spirit has drawn this out for us. This we will do if God permits. There's an invitational quality to the Greek. This let us do. We will do this. Come, do this with me. The Holy Spirit says, keep in step with me. Come along with me. I am leading a humanity in the shadow of the cross, in the fellowship of Jesus Christ, that there might be a new humanity for the new heavens and the new earth, and come with me. Come with me today. For the Lord permits. It says, if God permits. But this conditional does not suggest that God's will is undisclosed. We're confused. We know what is God's will for us. Our salvation. That we should grow up into Christ who is our head. That we should be conformed to his likeness and arrive in glory and his full righteousness. That we, my friends, 
should recognize that the day is coming when there will be no dead works from which to repent, no further faith in which to express. The baptism will be full and final. Indeed, no more discipline necessary, for we will be resurrected and judged just and justified. This we will do because God is permitting. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this beautiful gospel. Write it upon our hearts that we would believe in the totality and supremacy of Jesus. And that we would live out that life of love to the praise of your name. We pray, Father, that you would have mercy on us today. Turn us away from those distractions that minimize the role of Jesus in us and among us. And Father, attend to us that we might cultivate an attentiveness to you. And that we might, Father, know how to embrace the obedience of your word. That that word which you have spoken to us, read to us, preached to us, that we now will sing, might be written in our hearts and be transforming our lives. Father, we ask this thing, this blessing, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.